This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to the Hindu's In Focus podcast with me Amit Barua your host for this episode. It looks as if the saga of the National Register of Citizens or NRC as it is called will not be ending anytime soon for the people of Assam. Despite a final NRC created under the direct supervision of the Supreme Court of India, BJP governments at the center and state continue to stonewall its implementation. At stake is the citizenship status of little over 19 lakh persons whose names did not figure in the final NRC published under Supreme Court orders in August 2019. Nearly 3 years have passed, but the persons left out, both Hindus and Muslims, haven't had the opportunity to address their citizenship status. For long, the immigrant issue has been used to play political football with the lives of the people of Assam. It appears that the ruling BJP doesn't want to implement the final NRC as the numbers possibly don't suit its political orientation. Of late, Assam's NRC coordinator Hitesh Dev Khorma has written to judges in the foreigners tribunals saying that the NRC has published under the express orders of the Supreme Court not be treated as final. At least one of the judges has responded to Mr. Khorma by asking him not to interfere in the functioning of the tribunals, which he claimed was beyond the state coordinator's jurisdiction. So, where does the NRC and those affected by it go from here? To discuss these issues, I am joined from Assam by Sanjoy Borbora, who teaches at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Guwahati. Welcome to the In Focus podcast, Sanjoy. Thank you for having me, Amit. My first question to you Sanjoy how is this NRC saga going to play itself out in Assam It's a very complicated question at one level it seems to have receded into the background for many people in the public domain you don't hear as much about it as we did even 2 years ago but it has real consequences for those whose names are not in, not included so in a sense i think the 19 lakh people that you were referring to for them it will must it must be really really traumatic so it will continue in some form or the other this is something i've written about earlier as well so it actually seems to register in two paradoxical levels at two levels one is that it might almost seem as though the media and other and other you know organs of the state even civil society seem to have moved on but at another level it's a problem that's going to stay on with us like many other problems in assam until we fix it this is an issue which you rightly said say when the agitation also against the citizenship amendment bill which now has become an act was going on it seemed that was the overriding concern but somehow these issues vanish for a while from the public domain and then tend to return with a vengeance that's right i think uh, it also goes to show you how precarious any academic prediction about these matters can be partly because as social scientists we haven't really theorized very much about the kind of violence and the kind of counterinsurgency that has gone on in assam for the last four decades so if we don't theorize it that way what happens is everything becomes almost a stopgap explanation right so we get surprised by everything we get surprised by the fact that people in assam are welcoming the nrc whether they are muslim people hindu people assamese nationalists tribal people right and then we also get 
uh, by we, the collective we, I mean academics, we also get surprised when the same people come out on the streets and, and uh, protest against CAA. And then we're surprised for the third time when they vote back the, the BJP into power. So in a sense, the problem is not, I would like to place out there, that the problem doesn't belong to the people who are making decisions as they see fit. The problem actually is with us because we haven't understood what has happened in the past 40 years in Assam. Sanjay, tell us, I mean, uh, you know, we've seen this uh, cycle that you referred to. You know, there was a lot of opposition to the NRC, uh, you know, among sections of civil society. Equally, there are a lot of concerns, you know, about Assamese-speaking people that they would be reduced to a minority. And you've written, as you said, about the insider, outsider, the immigrant, foreigner issue. So, so how does this work now? I mean, I know there are many divisions in Assamese society, but overall, do you think that now that the NRC has happened and we have a hard number, so would implementing this address some of the concerns of uh, the you know Assamese-speaking people or indigenous Assamese people? Would 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 it address their concerns at all? I mean, that's an interesting question, but uh, I think it wouldn't. I think simply because the NRC at one level is, it came in, you know, in the 21st century to address an issue we thought had been resolved quite violently, I must say, in the 20th century. The idea that we have a set of people who are foreigners here. We thought that at least after the the brutal 1980s, there was let's say, a yearning for some other kind of resolution and which had to do with autonomy, right? So in a sense, throughout the 90s and 2000s, that was the greater focus for civil society, whether it was, you know, indigenous groups asking for more autonomy, whether it was the right to self-determination movements. Uh, So it seemed for at least two decades that the idea of the outsider had seemed to have receded into the background. But again, as someone who's been here for the last 20 years or more and has worked very closely with with the civil liberties and human rights movement, those earlier sentiments about the outsider didn't go away. It just got translated into very localized expressions of who belongs here and who doesn't belong here, right? So many people tend to forget in mainland India that between 1985 or so and, and 2005, most violence that was carried out, most displacement that was carried out in Assam had to do with indigenous communities themselves, whether it was Dimasas, Kukis, whether it was Garos and, and Rabhas, whether it was Boro and Adivasi, right? So I think that that fight just got carried over into a different realm. And for the lack of better, let's say, for the lack of better ways to classify it, we just call them ethnic conflicts. So in that sense, we've done great disservice to understanding how citizenship works in this part of the world. And and I think we are now paying the consequences for not being more clear about the very difficult circumstances in which, you know, citizenship ideas have come up and have been contested in Northeast India and our neighborhood. Don't forget, we come, we live in a very, very volatile neighborhood where these matters are being discussed differently, whether it's in Myanmar, whether it's in Bangladesh, whether it's in Bhutan. We are part of that larger mix. And so I know it's a bit of a 
long-winded answer to the question that you asked, but I just wanted to come back and tell you that this is really a complex issue and it cannot be wished away. And, and so any kind of effort at finding only a legal solution to it is not going to work. Sanjay, before I come back uh, to the NRC itself, I, I want to ask you a question that is linked to your larger uh, answer. So, you know, this fear of being swamped, you know, the fear of other people coming in, uh, taking your lands or your home or speaking a different language or, you know, dressing differently. So as, as a social scientist who's seen this closely, is there a way of addressing this fear? Because finally, as you said, you know, implementing the NRC may not resolve this fear or deal with it. So, so is there any other way of convincing people that they're safe and secure and their identity is protected? That's an excellent question again, Amit. I think, uh, and, and it requires a much more, let's say, nuanced answer than just saying yes or no. I think the fear of being swamped is a... You know, it's, it's again, you know, it seems like a question that is, that can be, you know, easily answered by saying, look, don't, don't focus on this. And there is no empirical way in which you can say that, you know, one place has been swamped. Let me just give you a small example. In my neighborhood, just 25 kilometers from where I live, there's a place called Mayong, and Mayong has a lot of mixed people of mixed ethnic uh, origins and heritage. The other day I was there for, for some work and then I saw, you know, there were huge crowds of people, most of them women, all of them women, waiting to pick up money that they were supposed to have got as, as was promised during the election, right? And they had voted for the BJP, all of them. So I asked them, I was sitting in a restaurant and I asked them. They were all Diwa or Assamese women. They were sitting in small restaurants that were owned by Bengali Hindus. And the bank was, of course, calling them out one by one, and they went. And I was thinking to myself, look, whatever we say sitting in Guwahati about the fear of being swamped, at some level on the ground, there is, it doesn't, people don't fight every day. People have resolved some of these questions for themselves. They flare up now and then, but the reasons they flare up also are very different. They're very contextual. So in that sense, I think, you need a different kind of politics that can reassure people that it's all right. That, you know, but these are questions that are universal. I think any group of people feel that if you keep telling them long enough that you're under threat, you're under threat, they will feel that that's true. Uh, and if you do that, tell them that you're under threat, after four decades of extreme brutal militarization, then you can be very sure that they're going to believe that only they have suffered and nobody else has suffered as much as them. And therefore, they will hold it against the others and they will use any means possible to say that we are not part of, the, you know, we are, not, we are not going to get swamped by outsiders. But in reality, like I said, on the ground, I feel that these small micro level, let's say, associations of people have become more accommodating uh, but occasionally they flare up as uh, as intractable issues, as issues that they cannot get over. And for that, I think I always come back to the four decades of militarization. Right. Sanjay, to come to the NRC itself, you know, uh, we have a situation uh, where the ruling BJP, you know, they were among the most active uh, proponents for the NRC. But now that, you know, the process has been completed, 
one can always quibble about uh, the the process but uh, here it was uh, you know conducted by some 52000 employees under you know multiple supreme court orders and so on so why do you think that the bjp government doesn't want to implement the nrc and in a sense has kept all these people in a limbo because those rejection slips that were to be issued have so far not been issued to these 19 lakh people yeah perhaps it has to also do with the, the fact that a lot of there are a lot of people who there who are not muslim i think it's as simple as that i think the bjp again you know speaking as someone who's looked at it from a distance and over time uh, the bjp is a party that was very strong in the barak valley was very uh, was very strong amongst uh, hindi speaking communities and so i think when they say that that they're not now they're a little bit reluctant to to go with these figures that they have is because in reality what has happened is that a lot of their own const- members of their constituency would be very disappointed with them i suppose right because they would feel that they've been lied to and on the other hand this is something that many you know many observers of of let's say civil society many observers many political commentators within assam way back even in 2015 16 and 17 they were quite clear that if the numbers come up there probably be more bengali speaking hindus who will be outside the nrc than bengali speaking muslims so i think it's very clear why the bjp doesn't want to push this because many of their constituents are outside of the nrc and it it's terrible optics then for them to say that we accept it so what do you think is going to happen now i mean will we just see that it's almost 3 years since uh, the final nrc was published and uh, though of course the state government doesn't believe it's final so so what do you think is going to happen now will this kind of state of affairs just uh, simply continue again it's hard to tell and and i think you'll agree with me that as social scientists our ability to predict has become totally whack you know it's become it's gone off kilter we've and i'm the first one to admit that as a social scientist there is really no way i'll stick my neck out and say now they'll forget about it right we've been wrong many times before but i will say this as someone who participates in everyday life political life in assam and i'll say this as someone who's assamese that i think it will be kept in some background like it will be kept in some back burner until it can be used again there is no imp- there is no theory that i have this is just a feeling which is why i speak not as a social scientist i speak as someone from assam it will be kept in the background like the nrc was kept in the background throughout the 80s and 90s and 2000s only to reappear again when there were more pressing demands for autonomy so i actually write about this in 2019 i wrote about it and i said it appears as a distraction right to take our attention away from other issues of self determination and resources so we live we're now living at a time when i think the pacification of insurgencies is almost complete peace for the government every day you news read the news and you and you see that the government saying that yeah it's we're thinking of removing apspa which is a good thing wonderful thing and then they're saying that you know we're, we're kind of going to people have accepted that we need development and so have everybody else so in that sense i think there is a sense that 
the NRC now, if you if you keep pressing on the NRC, it'll not have as many as much dividends as it paid, let's say, four or five years ago, when then it, it led it did lead to a lot of polarization in civil society. So I think speaking not as a social scientist again, but as someone who lives here, it will be on some back burner until it's useful to come back up again. Speaking of back burners, you know, uh, we saw, you know, the extreme responses, you know, the unhappy responses uh, from people in the Northeast when uh, the uh, Citizenship Amendment Bill and the, then which later became an act was brought into being. But as you said, after all the agitation, the party that brought it was voted back into power. From your perch in Assam, it would be, I would be interested in asking you, why do you think that the government hasn't gone, the central government hasn't gone ahead and implemented the CAA on which it expended considerable political capital? Perhaps because it has access to much more intelligence inputs than you and I, and perhaps they know that if they try it again, for a fact, you know, I think there will be pockets of the Northeast, large, large pockets of the Northeast where people will come back out onto the streets again, and they cannot afford it now. Nagaland's going into an election next year, so is Meghalaya. So they cannot afford this kind of disruption again. So, you know, again, it is not, I think, I think again, we're too quick to make, I think as, as, as political scientists and others, we're too quick to make uh, association between what happens on the street, what kind of brings people out onto the street to protest something, which is, you know, in such a passionate manner. And then we say that, well, then what happens? And how does that then translate into cold, calculated decisions to vote back the same party into power? So sometimes I think it's it's more useful to uncouple the two things, right? And that's when we understand each in its own right that people protest because they feel really, really pissed off, that they feel really that they've not been heard and they've been, again, sidelined. That's why they protest. Why do they vote for the BJP again? It's it's a whole very complex set of issues which has to do with the, the era that we live in, the era of handouts, the era of, you know, of, of social media, the era of, of advertisements. And they're very catchy, I think, you know, and let's face it, I think those who get elected, those who are politicians and the people around them, those who support them, like, like the booth, the, you know, the agents who support them are very, very smart. They're very, you know, they know what they're doing. They know how many votes they need to win certain places. And that's what makes elect, makes elections something that I don't ever want to predict in a sense. Right. Just to come back to you on the CA issue again. I mean, you know, as in Delhi, you know, considerable, you know, political effort was put into passing this legislation. And as you rightly point out that there are elections happening in many different northeastern states. Though Home Minister Amit Shah during a recent visit to West Bengal did say that after the pandemic is over, the CA will be implemented. But if you recall that many people felt that at the time when it was brought in, that those left out of the NRC would be given, the Hindus would be given citizenship through the CAA route, you know, provided the cutoffs and so on are met. But that also seems to be something of a far-fetched thought right now. Yeah, you're right. Like I said, I think, again, if Hindu, Bengali-speaking Hindus in Assam were 
suddenly seemed to be favored and given citizenship and others were told to, to go to detention camps, it would kind of, of course, I don't know about the rest of India, but it would raise a lot of, you know, anger in Assam itself. It would kind of completely, especially you know, districts like Norgaon, Morigaon, and Middle Assam and Upper Assam, they would completely, you know, come out onto the streets again. So I can see why it's a difficult call to make for state governments and, and for the central government. And I just hope that instead of being being Machiavellian about this, being kind of calculating and seeing like, you know, when can we unleash this and when would be a good time to do this behind, behind uh, you know, do it surreptitiously. It, it might be a better idea to just rely on plain old-fashioned dialogue between people. Just, it's, it's okay, you know, instead of trying to put people apart, it's okay to say that, look, these are discussions we need to have. Maybe civil society can have them. Because this is something, you know, Amit, I feel that uh, activists and, and researchers in mainland India ought to understand more, that all the time, civil society actors in the Northeast are responding to the fires that have been, you know, created by, you know, some Supreme Court statement or some act of parliament. For instance, just, I, I don't want to complicate your, your podcast, but just for instance, the Supreme Court says uh, Chakma should be given citizenship in, in Arunachal. I'm not even going into the merits or demerits of that case. That's besides the point. What I'm saying is that rather than sit in Delhi and give, you know, give out these statements, which you know are going to cause a lot of heartburn in the Northeast, it would be so much easier to go through the dialogue group and say that, look, we're going to have a consultation. Would you like to come and have a chat? I, not even in Gohati, but let's say somewhere in Pasighat, in Miao, in other places where we can discuss this matter. But we don't see our government doing that. We, instead, we see them giving us fiats from very far away and then leaving it to the same people, right? And ever since I was a 20-year-old, it's been the same elders who've gone out to the street, whether it's the Haid Yohobha or the church, right? Or, or elders who have gone out and, and asked people, please don't fight, don't do this. And I think 40 years is a long time. We should have learned. Right? And the government is a, should have learned that this is not the way to sort of introduce controversial laws in a region where people have begun to, you know, live separate lives because of counterinsurgency. I just want to ask you one last thing uh, b b before we end uh, this conversation. Is you, you did refer in your earlier remarks that, you know, people do, uh, people are living together with each other and the flare-ups do happen often with, uh, you know, local contextual issues coming to the fore. So, so how does one sort of stress that more? Uh, because, you know, it's always the flare-ups that get most attention. People uh, getting along, unfortunately, um, uh, you know, it doesn't make news. So, so how can we, you know, at a, at, at, a, at, a, at a level of the people, at the village, at the town and city level, how can we actually re-emphasize these, you know, everyday living together examples? That's a great question again, and I'm glad we're ending with that. I think a lot has to be done in terms of how we report these, this news. So it's very clear now that, uh, that, you know, when we look at legacy journalists or when we even look at the new online journalists, 
they don't live in the places that they report from. Right? They live further away, then, you know, they kind of go there when there's trouble. It would be great if we actually, if we actually took more cognizance and more kind of, we took local reporting more seriously. Every district, every small place in the Northeast now has, we have, you know, wonderful influencers. They have, they're always online. They're showing, you know, they're showing fun stuff. Sometimes some of it is not very politically correct. And there will be some, some of those ones which kind of suddenly knock you off and you think, hey, what's happening here? But by and large, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, let's say, interaction happening on the ground that people themselves are now representing, whether it's an, on YouTube or whether it's on, on, you know, on social media. It'd be great if we could just stay with those moments and amplify them, right? As journalists and as social scientists as well, because we walk away from these spaces far too quickly when we have our data on conflict. And we don't stay long enough to observe and to understand what makes people come together. Sanjay Borbora, thank you so much for talking to the Hindus in Focus podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Amit. It's wonderful as always. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.